From the Sun Journal Newsroom, this is executive editor Judith Meyer. A violent act is an epicenter. It shakes everyone within reach and creates other stories, cracks open the earth and reveals buried secrets. So begins after the eclipse, a mother's murder, a daughter's search. Sarah Perry's account of her mother's murder in Bridgeton, Maine, when Sarah was 12 years old. Crystal Perry was a hardworking single mother, a hand sewer in the Sebago shoe shop, who was beloved by many in her hometown. During a 12-year investigation, local police and state detectives worked tirelessly to find her killer, while Sarah, who was the only witness, did what she could to help them while working to grow into a woman who would make her mother proud. Driven to know more about Crystal after the trial, she wrote After the Eclipse, which was published in 2017 to excellent reviews in the New York Times, the Portland Press-Herald, Slate, Kirkus, and Publishers Weekly. When Sarah's mother was raped and murdered in their home in Bridgeton in 1994, the case quickly became cold. Maine State Police Lieutenant Walter Gribb picked up the cold case four years later. Because of that renewed investigation, the man who murdered Crystal Perry was ultimately identified through DNA and in 2007 was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Sarah's book is a memoir, but it is so much more than that. It's a telling of her life, her loss, and her fight to hold Michael Hutchinson accountable for his crime. But most of all, it's a book about a mother and daughter's shared love. Laura Miller of Slate Magazine called the book Raw Imperfect. I've never read a better depiction of how a sudden, violent event rips through a human being's apprehension of reality. Tess Garrison called it both a gripping mystery and a heartbreaking love letter to the fiercely devoted mother she lost. Sarah's perseverance in bringing her mother to life for readers was truly a remarkable effort. In the six-year process of writing the book, Sarah interviewed many people involved in the investigation, including Lieutenant Gribb. Sarah and Lieutenant Gribb came together for a discussion of Crystal's life and death, as well as their process of revisiting both for the creation of the book. That happened at the Great Falls Forum in Lewiston, Maine on November 21, 2019, and this was recorded live at that event. And thank you so much for having me, and thanks to everyone else sponsoring this event, and to all of you for attending. I had assumed it would be in the evening, and when I heard it would be noon, I didn't expect such a large crowd. So thank you for taking time out of your day. And thanks, of course, to Walt for coming, who's been such a central figure in my life. I've done a lot of book events at this point, but I've been hoping to do something with him for a long time. So I'll begin by reading a couple of selections from the book where I am Encountering law enforcement, um, the first one is the morning after the murder in Bridgeton, um, and Walt does not appear yet. And the second one is Walt calling me 12 years later. Two police officers came, filling the tiny bedroom with their dark blue rustling polyester uniforms. Several Bridgeton officers had come to the Venezia, but these were new cops, state cops. One was Detective Dick Pickett, by then appointed leader of the investigation, a small man with wire-rimmed glasses and a condescending manner. The other, Pat Lehan, I knew only as a generic cop figure, nodding along with Pickett. Lehan was one of more than two dozen policemen who would work on the case over the next 12 years, 
many of whom I would not meet and still know little about. I never spoke with Lee Han again, but Pickett would stay in my life for some time until the case got reassigned to someone else. On that first day, though, neither he nor I had any idea just how long our tense relationship would last. I told Pickett and Lee Han what had happened, focusing on one detail and then the next and then the next. Then we went over it again more carefully, Pickett stopping me repeatedly to ask questions, trying to get me to be more specific. I did my best to be thorough. Because I was a minor, a social worker sat next to me while I answered questions. My aunts were left outside the door. I was surprised to hear that there had been nothing wrong with the phones that night, and we have never really figured out why they didn't work. Now I have theories, and those must suffice. In the kitchen, I failed to put the phone back on the hook after it had fallen on the floor, after the beeping of the open line had turned to silence, and so there was no active line to call out on. If you'd like to make a call, you must hang up and try again. And then when I was about 15, I had a sudden unbidden sense memory of having frantically dialed 991 from mom's room rather than 911. The police have always been gracious on this point, have never dwelled on my failure to call out. The phones are a failure of logic in the story. There is also a failure of memory. Although I could tell Pickett and Lehan everything that had happened from the moment mom screamed that night, could march through every second and every detail, I could not remember the earlier part of the evening before mom and I had gone to bed. There was an utter blankness there, the terror of what came later destroying the final hours of our life together. The police wanted to know if mom had seemed upset, if she had received any phone calls, when exactly she had gone to bed. No matter what they asked about those hours before the murder or how hard I thought about them, I could not retrieve those details. It must have been clear to them that I would never get those hours back because they were surprisingly merciful about them. On all the other details, though, the investigators were relentless from the start. I gave Pickett all I had, but he wanted more. I really, really get the sense that you know who was there, he said. He raised his eyebrows and tilted his head back, inviting me to go ahead and give up my information. When I described the sound of the kitchen drawer opening, of a knife being taken out, Pickett wondered how I knew it was a knife. The weapon had been and would not been and would never be found. After I'd described several times the sounds of the stabbing and the silence that followed, he said, let me ask you this, how do you think your mother was hurt? Pickett found it suspicious that while I claimed I hadn't seen the killing, I was sure that a knife had been taken out of our kitchen drawer. He kept asking me why I was so convinced that she had been killed with a knife, was unsatisfied when I said that just seemed the likeliest explanation. When he said once more, and what makes you think it was a knife? I replied, because of the sound I heard, and well, I don't see how you could use a spoon or anything. When I read the transcript of this interview years later, I found that response both obnoxious and wonderful. I was proud of my little girl self for pushing back, even when she was most broken. Pickett was interviewing me because I was the only witness, as well as the person who was closest to my mother, because the things I had to say were important. But still, he didn't seem to really listen. He seemed to have already made up his mind that very first day about what had happened and who was responsible. His attitude implied that any answers that didn't conform to his theory were mistaken, ridiculous. He asked me a long line of questions about mom and Dennis's fights. 
I said that Dennis had a temper, that they yelled a lot. And Pickett replied, it sounds like you really think a lot of Dennis. Later in the interview, Pickett asked the question that most clearly told me that we would never understand each other. Is it possible that the person that was there is somebody that you care about a lot and don't want to get into trouble, he said, even though you know what happened was wrong? I don't know who it is, I said once again, my voice straining with frustration. My love for my mother didn't seem to matter much. He was not going to assume that I cared more about her than about getting her killer in trouble. I realized that to the police, these people who had so much power, I was not a person who could be counted on to behave ethically. I looked at him, still not entirely sure he was serious, but he kept looking back at me, waiting. I knew that the police and my family thought it would be additionally tragic if the killer was someone known to me, that they thought I would feel betrayed, confused, hurt. But I didn't care if the killer was someone I knew or someone I had previously cared about. Mom was dead. Nothing else had meaning. Whether it was a man I knew or a man I didn't mattered very little in comparison with the fact that I would never see her again. It was one of the many things that no longer mattered at all. I looked at Pickett's impatient, self-assured face. I don't know, I said again, slowly and clearly, while cursing my own ignorance. He and Lee Han said they thought that maybe I had come out into the living room and seen the man's face during the attack. But they offered no explanation for how I could have gotten out alive if I had. It was only my certainty that if I had, I would have ended up dead, that shielded me from a regret that would have torn me apart. This next section is 12 years later. I have gone down south to North Carolina and attended college, and I'm working at the University of North Carolina. And I'm in my office. I'm about 25 this year. It was a Monday, late March 2006, a quiet day. Polite, mumbled conversations, gurgle of the coffee maker, the shuring sound of paper piling up in the coffee copy machine exit tray, the occasional warbly digital ring of a telephone. The central reception line rang out at about two o'clock, breaking the post-lunch spell. Dean's office, this is Courtney, hold on, just a moment. She nodded at me, hit the hold button. I stretched my face into a smile, one that would bend my words so it sounded on the other end, like I was chipper and energetic and eager to help. I raised my eyebrows at Courtney while she giggled. I snatched up the receiver, punched the lip button to release the line. Hello, this is Sarah. Sarah, this is Walter Grip. How you doing down there? Strange to do this with you right here. I should, we should probably be doing this together. Do you want to do your lines? Okay. I knew he would say no. The long, rounded vowels of that main accent that I can't really do anymore rushed suddenly into my unprepared ears. It had been months since I'd spoken to anyone up north. Oh, I'm, I'm good, just, you know, Monday, working, just at the office here. Uh, it's been a while. Walt cut me off, abrupt in a way I'd never heard before. Good, good. Listen, Sarah, I've got some news for you. In fact, are you alone right now, or can you get somewhere where you have some privacy? Sure, I said, starting to shake just a little, surprising myself. We have an extra office, I'll just transfer over, just give me a minute. I couldn't tell if I sounded normal, 
I focused on all those old, failed leads, tried to use them to hold down my newly pounding pulse. There had been a tightness in Wald's voice, a slightly higher pitch, something different from the even professional tone I remembered. It almost sounded like excitement. But surely Walt would read me the name of a town that, no, we'd never visited, and a man that, no, I'd never heard of, a supposed lead that would prove to be the product of rumor. Many people called the police because they craved the shadowy fame of being connected with the case, thought it would throw them into relief against the gray background of other people's calm, uneventful lives. They tried to imbue incidental connections with meaning, their imaginations fast-forwarding to headlines about a heroic tipster. They claimed to have overheard confessions, to have found a knife in the woods, to have seen a vehicle that night, eight or 10 or now 12 years ago, and the police would cautiously and thoroughly investigate and come up with nothing. As I got up from my desk, I prepared myself for the familiar whoosh of disappointment, the quick loss of hope, followed by the shame of ever having felt that hope, even for a moment. My life would not change, I told myself, and that would be fine, just fine. I shut myself into the dim spare office. White light from the overcast sky came in through the big window, angling down between our building and the next. I sat down at the large desk, armed with a white legal pad and a blue pen. I untapped the pen just in case. I picked up the receiver and pushed the button for Walt's call. Okay, I'm ready. Hmm, let's switch. So suspenseful. <laughs> now I'm ready. <clears throat> What's going on? I asked smoothly, calmly, in my work voice. Walt took a breath. Well, Sarah, we think we know who killed your mother. In fact, we're sure we know. I can't remember what I said first. My heartbeat hammered in my ears erasing the words as I spoke them. I do know that the surface of the desk suddenly seemed very far away. If I faint, I thought, will anyone hear it? Walt first asked if the man's name was familiar to me. You ever heard of a Michael, Mike Hutchinson? I hadn't. But as Walt explained, this was most certainly not another failed lead. The sickening feeling of disappointment didn't come. My pulse gradually slowed to normal. Walt was sure, and the evidence sounded good. I lowered the pen's fine point and wrote, Michael Hutchinson. I still have those notes. The handwriting is tight and cramped, unlike my usual scrawl, as though tentative or disbelieving. But the period after Hutchinson is large and sure. His name a sentence unto itself, a complete idea. I'd let the pen tip sit there for a second or two, flooding the paper with ink. Walt told me that Hutchinson had matched the DNA samples taken from the murder scene. He had been convicted of a felony, kidnapping plus criminal threatening with a firearm, in late 2003, and so he'd had to submit to a cheek swab for entry into the FBI's criminal database. The typing of each sample can take years, Walt said, because of a long backlog. Violence outpaced lab funding everywhere. Maine's delay at the time was two years, in some states, it was up to 10. But Maine had recently received some federal funding to catch up. Well, the lab had finally gotten to Hutchinson's sample just a week before, two and a half years after his kidnapping conviction. And as soon as they entered it into the database, there was a match to the blood samples that had been waiting 12 years. 
that had failed to match with nearly 30 other men. A solid match, no doubt about it. Hutchinson was now 31 years old. On that day, I was 24, had lived without mom for half my life. The typing would be repeated as was standard, but Walt had already spoken with Hutchinson twice in the county jail where he'd been incarcerated after violating his probation. I listened closely, made a few carefully inscribed notes, trying to retain each detail. I seized the most surreal one and asked, you talked to him? Someone I knew had sit and sat down with this man just the day before. He was no longer an abstract concept, a blank space behind the explosion of a long silver gun in my mind, my revenge fantasy. He was real, a person upon the earth. Yeah, Walt said, and here his excitement broke through. He was thrilled to tell me the story. He sped up and his sentences were scattered with little laughs, the happiness of victory. I sat him down and I said, do you know Crystal Perry? Were you ever in Crystal Perry's house? And he up and down denied it, absolutely denied it. I came back the next day, I gave him another chance and he denied it again. And that's going to be really good when it's time for trial because he won't be able to make up some story about knowing your mother. He'll be out of a lot of alibis for why we found his DNA all over the place. Trial, I thought. Trial, it's going to happen. And you know too, we knew all along this guy had a cut along his hand. That he must have had a wicked gash across his palm from the knife. That was the reason his blood was all over. Happens all the time in cases like this, they slip. And as soon as I saw him, Hutchinson, I asked to see his hand, and he has this big scar right across his palm. He claims it's from a car wreck, but I just knew it. I always knew this guy would have this old injury. Walt told me that if we got a conviction, the Attorney General's office was considering pursuing a life sentence, as Maine does not have the death penalty. He explained that Maine was one of the few states where a life sentence carries no possibility of parole. And because judges can be hesitant to apply such an absolute punishment, the AG's office rarely suggested it. But in this case, it seemed more than warranted. It turned out Hutchinson had been living right there in Bridgeton all along. I hadn't been unreasonable when I had imagined him walking down Main Street. He had a wife, two kids, worked as a mason for his father's company sometimes, sold drugs more often. I stopped writing and took a deep breath. The thing is, I have to admit that at some point I just thought I was never going to get this call. Now Walt's tone got more serious. You know, Sarah, I never wanted to say this, but sometimes, especially when there'd be months with just nothing, sometimes I thought I'd never be making this call. Thank you. So first, now that I've given my account, Walt, I'd like to ask you what you remember about that day of the call. Uh, just sitting here and listening to that is uh, brings back so many emotions. It was so powerful. I mean, I think that's why this book is so fantastic. It's uh, unbelievable. I find my heart racing. But anyways, um, the uh, the day I got the call, I um, my my office is in gray. It wasn't gray at the time. I was a supervisor in the criminal investigation division. And it was just a regular day. Um, 
doing paperwork, reviewing reports, payroll. I, I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but my phone rang, and uh, if I recall right, it was Bill Harwood from the crime lab. He was the commander of the crime lab up there at the time, and um, <coughs> he had been a detective at one point, and uh, he actually, I, I, I'm not sure he worked on this case, but he was very familiar with it being so, uh, being part of the crime lab, and he knew all the ins and outs, and he knew how important this case was to me. So, uh, this was a big call for him as well. And uh, he just, I, I picked up the phone, he said that uh, he had some news on the Crystal Perry case, and he explained to me the, the, some of what Sarah just spoke about, how uh, they had submitted, recently submitted a number of uh, profiles, DNA profiles, um, in, for, for CODIS. And uh, the profiles were completed, they were entered into CODIS uh, over the weekend, and when they got there on Monday, there was a notice <coughs> that there had been a hit on this case. And so they began at the crime lab doing some of the, the work to kind of figure out um, what, what it all meant. So he just he told me that uh, it, they had gotten a match on the on the suspect's DNA profile. Uh, he told me that it was an individual named Michael Hutchinson. Asked me if I'd ever heard of him. I hadn't. And uh, he had done a little background and found out that he was at the Cumberland County Jail on a probation violation. I think I used a lot of expletives like "holy <laughs> what" and everything else. You gotta be kidding me. And the person, there was another detective at the time, uh, his name is uh, Chris Harriman, who was actually, at the time, he was the primary investigator in this case. And he was out uh, in the next room, out in the common area of our office. And uh, as soon as I got off the phone, I went out and told him. And uh, it just, we were, we were blown away. We didn't, it came out of the blue. Um, and we just uh, looked at each other and said, okay, Let's go down and talk to Mr. Hutchinson and find out what the story is. And uh, made a few other calls, and uh, he and I ended up going down to the Cumberland County Jail and uh, sitting down with Mr. Hutchinson and uh, and just laid out a number of questions to him. And um, as Sarah mentioned, we hoped for a confession, as you always do in these cases, but uh, we didn't expect one. So our Next hope was that uh, he would completely deny everything, including knowing Crystal, knowing anything about the crime, uh, denying that he had ever stepped foot in the house, and, and a complete denial. Short of a full-blown confession, we felt that that was the next best thing. And in retrospect, probably even better than a full-blown confession when it comes came time for trial. So we went down and that's exactly what he did. Denied everything. Didn't, didn't know Crystal, never been in the house, didn't know anything about the case. Um, said, okay, good. Uh, we left and uh, our plan was to go back the next day and run through the questions again, just to be sure. And so that's what we did. We went back the next day, asked him all the same questions, he gave the same answers. Uh, denying it, and <clears throat> our plan was, after we had been down that path again, we were going to be a, become a little confrontational with him and see if we could get some admission from him. So we kind of 
changed the tone of the questioning a little bit and got a little bit more accusatory. We told him that we had the DNA match. And I'll never forget his, how his face glassed over. And he looked at us and uh, you could tell he just checked out and he said, I want an attorney now. And for us, that signals, that signals that the interview is over. So that was the end of the interview. We really had gotten what we'd hoped to get. And what I'd like to ask you, too, is how you felt after all these years of working on the case. It was very exciting to get the match, but in retrospect, knowing that the sample had been sitting there for two years. Um, well, I was, I mean, my first, first emotion was I was overjoyed that we had a match occurred and that we had now had an identity on the person who killed your mother. Um, no question that was... Uh, it was just a completely overjoyed. I'm so so excited about it. Um, and but but at the same time, you know, when you stopped and uh, thought about it, that you know this had been sitting there for two years and you know could have been solved a little bit sooner. Um, you know that that is frustrating. But I guess I understood it being part of a system, I, I mean, I, I knew these things happened. It was beyond control of myself, certainly, but um, I, I was just excited that we had solved it. Um, but then I guess some of the follow-up emotions that you have later on is, you know, how did we miss this? You know, how did we miss this guy? Could we, was there something that was missed somewhere in the investigation that, because he was right there, he was a, he was a, uh, stranger in plain sight. He, it, he was from Bridgeton. He lived in Bridgeton at the time. He continued to live in Bridgeton. Um, <clears throat> and close by. And, and he lived close. He did. He lived. Um, I know you probably don't know Bridgeton at all, but <clears throat> your house, his mother lived on one side of the house, and his father, because they had split up, lived on the other side of the house. And it was a, probably maybe two miles between the two. So Michael would have been traveling back and forth in front of your house that whole time. Um, so, I, I, you know, that was one of the things that really I, I thought a lot about that, you know, afterwards. How did we miss this guy? I won't make excuses, but I mean, it was just he never came on the radar. He wasn't in your circles. He, he didn't come up in any of the investigations. And, um, confident that had he, you know, things could have been different, but they just ne he never did, so. So something I'm curious about, you know, people often ask me, you know, how did you live through this violent event and then you carried it with you forward into your life and, you know, of course that was inherently challenging and this was my mother, but Walt, you were exposed to these sorts of things day after day after day and having to look at the photos and having to talk to people who you know, were potential perpetrators or perpetrators and, you know, having to keep some cases for years and years and years and have that sort of, you know, frustration of, of feeling like, I'm sure so many points you felt like maybe you were close to the answer and then it not coming to fruition. And I just, you know, I think about you as a person, you're so amiable, you have such a good sense of humor, you have a family, 
how do you leave all of that at work? Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you don't. I mean, is the answer. You really don't. But you do get used to it, and you do, um, you do find ways to, it becomes kind of, you, I guess you just get used to it. Um, you know, you talk about all the things. You talk about having a family. I you know, stayed active uh, in different sports, doing different things. Uh, you try to live a, no a completely normal life, even though when you're at work, you're dealing with these horrific events. And you're right. I mean, I, I did uh, major crimes, uh, the CID work, for, for a lot of years. And um, I can't even begin to tell you the horrific you know, things that you know, I saw in, in the course of the, my career. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but you do, you get callous to it, it just, I guess is the way you describe it. Um, it's not that you don't feel for it, it's not that you don't have compassion and empathy, um, you just find ways to separate your personal life with that stuff. Uh, it's, it's pretty much every law enforcement officer has to do that. Yeah. Um, but that being said, some cases really you get more attached to than others. Some cases mean more to you than others. And for me, this was definitely one of those cases. And, and I really, there's only maybe two or three cases, or maybe two cases other than this one that I really felt, you know, felt that way about. But this one was by far the one I attached to the most. And, uh, you know, once I began working on this case, um, meeting you, uh, the rest of your family, um, it really just became uh, a mission uh, to, to, to solve this case. I mean, it, I, they, um, and at times it, it is consuming, you know, you, you, you spend all day at work and, and you're like, ah, you start thinking of things when you get home and you break out the case file, you break out the pictures, you start reading through the interviews and, you know, you just can't let it go. And there were, there were a few years that that's, that's the way it was, so, but uh, survived and, uh, <laughs> and uh, all's well that ends well. Yeah, so. yeah. It's, it's interesting to reflect on the moment of our meeting because I was probably at the peak of my um, rage against law enforcement in that moment. <laughs> so I gave Walt a really hard time and I was 15, I think. Yeah. So it was it, yeah, a combination, yeah, it was a combination of this unique circumstance and just being a bratty teenager, I so think. So it wasn't just me, you really did feel that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I did. <laughs> That's exactly, I mean, I was thinking over here the first time we met, and I think it was at your aunt's house mm -hmm. in Peru, and uh, that's, uh, I remember um, you were very polite, um, but you certainly would rather have been doing anything <laughs> talking to me. Um, you could tell there was anger, distrust, all of those things. Uh, when we first met, and I went, "Wow, this is, you know, she she really doesn't like like me." So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but 
but I but, but what I do remember is um, even though that you you certainly you, I, I could tell that you'd rather not be part of the, this whole thing, you told you know you said that anything you could do to help. Um, you you weren't keeping me at arm's length. You were just being honest with your emotions. And, yeah. Uh, and so. Yeah. I mean, I, w I was really devoted to doing everything I could. I just wanted us to have answers so we didn't have to do it anymore. And I, I do remember, though, that um, you made a good impression, but at that point I just had this blanket anti-law enforcement feeling, um, as you can hear in the first section of the book, too. And that was something that was interesting about writing the book and interesting with my family, too, because in going back and re-inhabiting these moments and describing the feelings I had then, you know, I, it's asking a lot for people in my life to understand that I don't necessarily feel that way anymore. I, I was, on my way over, I was trying to remember, did I come on my own or did Dick Pickett bring me and introduce me? I oh, that's remember. what happened. So that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened, yeah. Um, and then we, um, we were driving down to Boston just me and you right. so many times to see this uh, memory recovery specialist. Yeah. 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 But things did things did evolve. Yeah. Yeah, those were I remember those, you know, I'd, I'd pick you up at the house and we'd drive down to Boston. We did it, I don't know, four or five times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, long rides. Usually usually but by the end it was better. It got better. It got better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also because I knew it was ending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I look back now and I'm I'm really grateful for how devoted to this case that you and everybody else involved was. And you know, I say it in the book and I know it's still true. I met people today who were, you know, had day-to-day -day involvement or awareness of this case who were even if they weren't, you know, I've just heard time and again people who weren't necessarily assigned to it in any official capacity, but were aware of what was going on in the investigation and would keep their ears open. And something that I've appreciated more, you know, in the process of writing the book is that that's not the case for every case that you're taking in. There just aren't, you just can't be equally devoted. There are limited resources and people are human. They get you know, um, a pr maybe particularly motivated about a particular case. And now looking back, I'm really grateful for that. And it was this case, uh, you know, that you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, this case was um, myself and, and not only myself, there were a lot of people. I mean, I, I couldn't name them all. This case was because it was, it was an infamous case within the State Police Criminal Investigation Division. We did case studies on it, presentations at trainings. We tried to get everybody, everybody um, who had a kind of criminal investigative mind uh, to think about it and offer suggestions on how, what we could do to solve this. And, um, but, you know, the thing, in, in cold cases, it, it was always a frustration had I had my choice, I would work. I would have worked on this case exclusively, none other. But cases still keep coming in, 
new cases keep coming in every day that you have to give attention to. So, um, so that was always a frustration. I mean, that's always a frustration for a lot of investigators where they wish they could dedicate full time to, to these investigations. Sometimes they have other things that they have to do. And I know for me, that was a frustration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I just have to admire your ability to, to take on so multiple cases at a time, you know, and thinking about, because an investigation is a process of putting to, together a story, right? And you're taking in all of these details and things are maybe happening in the same communities and maybe there's overlap with people you're talking to about different things. I don't know, I'm not an investigator, but you know, I'm just thinking even, even when I'm reading multiple books at a time, I can start to conflate things and to keep all of that straight is really, really impressive, I think. Just uh, take notes and keep it all, try to keep it all straight. It was really, it was really gratifying and interesting in the process of writing the book. I interviewed a lot of people, and I, we sat down, and you were so generous with your time. I think I have eight hours of our interviews, so that was a little satisfying. I got to turn the tables and be the one asking the questions. You were good. Thank you, thank you. Well, that's the other thing. Then you know, you're talking to a pro. Um, was really good at gathering information from people as well. Yeah, so I learned a lot as I went along. Do you so I have questions for you. Great, take it away. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, she talks about it, but I think this is the first time we've ever done anything like this together. So, you know, Sarah suggested that I come up with some questions, and I'm, so I'm, I'm glad you did because here, here you know, here's a few things that that I think about, and uh, so I've got them written down, so if you don't mind, I'm just gonna read them. Um, for me, uh, one of the most powerful aspects of your book was how you described your feelings about the investigation and the investigators. We heard that earlier. Right from the beginning and continuing on through the years, you talked about your frustrations, anger, and negative emotions you felt about the investigators and the investigative process. Obviously, this caused more harm than good at times. Uh, while some of this is unavoidable, I think your book provides a training opportunity for investigators that does not currently exist regarding the impact they have on survivors while doing these investi investigations. What would you say to investigators working on these types of cases? Hmm. It's a big question. It's such a complicated issue because as I said, I was devoted to helping as much as I could. and. You know, I have to own that, and I'm sure you see this all the time, that a lot of that anger was projection. You know, I didn't, we didn't know who the killer was, so I had all of this rage within me that had no target, you know? So I think some of it leaked out into the people who I thought should be responsible for solving this. And, you know, while keeping in mind that that doesn't fix anything, that doesn't bring mom back, you know? but also feeling that this person was free and maybe I was in danger or other people were in danger and you think, you know, this wasn't a sophisticated hit, you know. There was so much evidence, um, you know, as, as we've reflected on, you know, maybe that is part of why um, so many people remained really devoted to trying to figure this out. Um, I think it's so, it's tricky because it's not, it isn't my profession, but I wonder if there could have been more coordination so that I wouldn't have had to do the same interview so many times. 
in the early days. Um, but I think, you know, that also, the thing is, what frustrated me then, now I understand, came out of everybody's devotion to try to figure out what had happened. And there's no, there's no gentle way to interview a 12-year-old about a murder that she witnessed. Um, but it is interesting now that I've had access to the case file, and thank you, um, the instincts that I had about people who I particularly distrusted often bore out in the, in the behind-the-scenes notes that I became privy to, you know. Um, even, even the therapist who I was advised to, to go to, I guess, didn't think my grief conformed to what she expected and she became suspicious of me. And um, other small anecdotes like that that I are in the book or I won't share, um, where I just felt like I could tell that people were coming with maybe a judgmental attitude. And now as an adult looking back, I wonder if sometimes there were some class issues there. Um, I think also too of various you know, friends I had. This wasn't exactly the case in my family, but um, you know, often when the police show up, it's, it, it means bad things. You know, I, I have friends who grew up, you know, not being all that truthful with people in their schools or maybe law enforcement who came because they were worried that it was going to become a DHS issue or that their parents would get arrested. So, you know, there, there grows up this atmosphere of distrust. And I wonder too if some of, you know, if, if detectives are exposed to that sort of attitude and maybe that's what they begin to expect from young people, you know, that it becomes this circular relationship. What, what are some of the things you think they could have done at some point to maybe reduce that impact or those emotions, to, to reduce the, uh, the negative feelings? I mean, I think some of it, in my particular case, had to do with the era in which we were doing this because repressed memory was such a popular mm -hmm. concept at the time that has since been, I think, pretty clinically disproven. Um, so even though my account of the night didn't have holes, I think there was a real wish that I had repressed memory and could have just pointed my finger at the person. Um, so I think that was the thing that was most I think harmful to me was being disbelieved about my own memory or being told that I had memories that I wasn't aware that I was having. It was very crazy making for a person. And I'm still quite sensitive to that sort of thing. Like, that's maybe the fight I'm having with my boyfriend over and over, you know? He says he remembers something one way, as people do, and I remember it a different way. And sometimes I can get a little intense about that. And I think some of that harkens back to the hours of being exposed to that line of questioning. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think we all, law enforcement officers, feel the same way. I mean, we, when somebody tells us we, they, they don't believe us, you know, that we're telling, that we're making something up, there's nothing that bothers us right. more than that. So. Right. And I think, you know, a big motivation for me in writing the book was to make an account that didn't conform to all of the flashy, sensational true crime accounts that we see on television and, and books and TV series and movies. And I think, you know, that those stories can be so harmful to victims and survivors, but also harmful to law enforcement because there's this 
you know, there's this trope of the cop that lies to everybody in the interviews in order to manipulate them or intimidate them. And, you know, when in reality, it's my buddy Walt, you know, just trying to <laughs> do his best and get the information and be this really upstanding, you know, person who's devoted to truth. Like, that's what the job is about. So I think, you know, part of our saturation in all of this true crime media, you know, ends up affecting, arguably ends up affecting the reality of these things in the end. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm maybe like a politician dodging your question a little bit. What specifically would I have liked them to have done differently? No, I just, I just um, I, having some experience and then working with less experienced investigators, I just, for me, it'd be, what is it that I could pass on to them as they go out and interview somebody yeah. like you? Yeah. Um, to not, to not re-traumatize you or yeah. create these negative feelings that yeah. were created. And like I said, some of it is unavoidable because you're gonna be asking uncomfortable questions which are difficult, but right. to the greatest extent possible, you know, what, what is it that a, a, an investigator can do to, to minimize that? I think it's, it's so hard to you know, it's a, it's a, if we're thinking of children or preteens, you know, a young person who you've never met before, um, I don't know if there is any training or there could be any, you know, training in child development, awareness. Um, I'm really trying to remember, I'm not sure I want to put her on the spot. Kate Leonard is here, who was the first um, police officer I encountered that night. And I remember when I interviewed her for the purposes of the book, she said she was really grateful that nobody ever asked me, Kate, do you remember what you said? I don't. You don't. <laughs> it was, it's, the question isn't necessarily important, but it was a question that would have led me to feel guilty about not having saved mom. I think it was along the lines of, you know, why didn't you use the other phone in the room while this was happening. Yeah, why, you know, why didn't, why did you sit in your room? And, you know, that bespeaks a certain level of sensitivity from the investigators. But um, I think when, when Kate and I reflected on that, it sort of felt like I had dodged a bullet and just one question could have affected me so strongly the rest of my life. Yeah. Um. Well, just to get to the next question. Sure. Um, I, have, I have often called you my hero because how you have persevered through the years. Well, I know it wasn't easy. You have achieved great things personally, academically, professionally. I think a lot of people, understandably, would not have done as well. Uh, you never took on the victim mentality as, again, understandably, some would have. Where did you find the strength, courage, and motivation to do all the things you have done? And what advice <coughs> Uh, would you have for somebody, especially a young person who has experienced a life-altering event? Mm. Well, thank you. There are a lot of great compliments in there. Um, really, a lot of it had to do with my mother, you know, and being raised by a single mother who had struggled a lot and being the only child to a single mother who was young. We were very bonded. You know, for safety reasons and emotional reasons, I maybe knew more about her life and what she had been through than the average child might know about their mother. 
and she had always maintained hope. She, you know, always, she was joyous, she was spontaneous, she bought her own house, which was a huge accomplishment, and I had seen her do all of that, and then, you know, her life be tragically ended after she had worked so hard. So I did have this mentality of wanting to continue her project, which was really to lift me up and make sure that I had an easier time of life than she had. And I, you know, I really didn't want this person to have ruined that for her, even though she wasn't there anymore. And the other part of it is that a lot of teachers took an interest in me. Um, I was fortunate enough to always be really good in school. And, you know, it was almost always my English teacher was very invested in me. And, um, you know, just having another, just having, what was good about that is that I had always been so academic and I had had this thought of being a writer or being some sort of intellectual and having people who had done that work be invested in me really meant a lot. Well, you certainly have done that. Again, you are my hero. I've said it a million You're times. You're my hero. And, uh, it's just remarkable that, you know, when you think about it, the, the things that you've accomplished. And Thank you. From time to time through the years, I have written about various cases uh, I have worked on, just to have a personal record of, of, of them. Um, I have found that uh, it can be quite an intense experience. Um, as you go back and try to remember the details and feelings uh, that you experienced from them. Uh, what was it like for you as you wrote this book to go back to some of these difficult places and describe them in detail? So it is really intense to go back and write and I teach writing now and I teach you know, essay and memoir and a lot of my students are writing about really traumatic, difficult things that they've lived through and I advise them the advice is contradictory. I tell them, you know, think about yourself as a character so that you have a little distance from it, so that you can protect your real self in the world. You're making another self on the page. You know, people often think that they know me really intimately after they read the book, and it's true in some ways and true and not. It, you know, it's, it really isn't my entire life. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to be so distanced that your scenes don't have the vivid detail and feeling of the time. You know, you really want to walk the reader through your experience. So, you know, you have to purposefully put yourself back there. I would listen to music from the time. I would come up to Maine and just stand in Bridgeton on Main Street and remember what it smelled like and get back there emotionally. Um, and strange things would happen. I wrote my rent check in Brooklyn at some point in 2012 and wrote 1997 on it, which doesn't even make sense because I wasn't old enough to write checks in 1997. Um, so it is continually a process, I think, of living back then and then finding a way to get, get back to here. And I've gotten more systematic and careful about it. You know, I would plan a writing session and I would make sure that I had a date to meet up with a friend afterward. And we would just have a glass or two of wine and not talk about anything serious. Kind of drag you back into yeah. The yeah, like let's just talk about television or gossip about other writers we know or, you know, just get back into our daily lives. Or, you know, I did a lot of research trips up to Maine um, and, 
you know, that would be difficult to be here and be going back to that time. So I would make sure that I had friends to call and that I would keep in touch with, you know, my otherwise daily life. Yeah. Good, I'm glad to hear that it is because it, it, it really, that's a good, good advice to, if you're gonna do something like that, kind of have some plans to do something afterwards. Yeah, because especially, you know, if you're a writer and you really take pleasure in writing or you're a very due diligence person and you like doing research, like I would get in my journalist mode and I would do all these things and I'd be looking through the case file and I'd be reading the autopsy report and feeling good about myself because I was doing my job for six hours or something and then I would go home and it would be dark and two hours later I would feel really terrible. So I got better at understanding my limitations. Um, well, I've got a couple more questions. I don't know how much time we have. Uh, I'm going to get to. Uh, okay. Get, We're getting the signal. We, we have time, but um, just just curious. I mean, we talk from time to time, and I, I've heard you know, your, some of these things. But but what's next for you? Um, do you have any goals, aspirations, or projects that you'd like to work on that you are working on? But you know, um, what's next? Well, um, right now I'm working on a series of short essays. Um, you know, it's, it's tricky because I don't think I will ever find a book topic that I'm as compelled to write. And now knowing how much work it takes to write a book, I really need to make sure that my topic for the next one is something that I can remain devoted to for five or six or maybe it'll be 10 years, who knows. Um, so nothing's exactly caught fire for a new book, but I am really enjoying, um, I placed a couple essays and a couple anthologies that'll be coming out, and it's nice to have multiple hits, you know, be putting more things out in the world. But lately I've been really focused on teaching, I'm teaching at Columbia where I got my MFA and a few other places, and it's been really gratifying to help other people do this work, to get their stories out in the world, and I'm just, I know this is kind of a cliche of teaching, but I'm really learning a lot from them about my process. And because this book was so emotionally taxing and I was lucky enough to sell it on proposals, so I had some money up front, I did a lot of taking time off work and just focusing on this. So process-wise, I'm, I'm working on blending work and you know money work and creative work at the moment. Nice. Well, thanks so much for being here. Sure. Thank you. That was wonderful. I, if you don't mind, I would just like to ask you a quick question. So sure. In the book, you describe your mother as, as fun and just warm, and she loved to clean house, and just she just seemed like a, a cool person. I wonder, do you ever see her in yourself? I do, more and more. Um, and I'm in an interesting place now. I'll, soon I will be eight years older than she ever was. Um, but I become more and more like her. I think, um, you know, I've learned as I'm teaching too, you have this idea of what the professor is and they're this serious, commanding person. I really don't have that aura. I think I, you know, I have a, a less formal, kind of personal, warm style like mom did. She was always really good at making friends. She was always one to crack a joke, even in a serious situation. 
um, and I definitely have the uh, anxiety propulsion cleaning thing, <laughs> as my roommates can tell you. Yeah, um, I think I become more and more like her, and I think a lot about her when I, you know, maybe want to change or improve something about myself. Now I understand better how she operated. Thanks, Thank Judy. What you have just heard was recorded at the Great Falls Forum in Lewiston, Maine on November 21st, 2019, an event sponsored by the Sun Journal, the Lewiston Public Library, and Bates College.